you have to shout a little louder, amen, on a Wednesday night. It is so good to see all of you here, and what a great crowd we have on a Wednesday night. And to all of you that are watching online, thank you. And I want to reiterate to you that we have plenty of room on Wednesdays, and if you are concerned uh, about uh, COVID, there's plenty of room here on Wednesdays. You're more than safe, and so I would encourage you to take that uh, step of faith and to come visit with us on Wednesdays. Amen. The Lord bless you. You may be seated. Again, it's just a delight to see all of you here in the house of the Lord tonight. And uh, so glad to be in the presence of the Lord. Amen. Um, I am thankful that we have uh, so much that we can rejoice in. The Lord's work, the Lord works in our lives on a daily basis. And, you know, what would you do without the Lord? I know people get along just fine without acknowledging the Lord. They're uh, atheists and people of different religions and agnostics all over the place. So people get on. But I'm thankful that we have found the joy of knowing what it's like to live life with the Lord and to have the relationship with Him and with His people. And it is, a, it is our privilege to walk through life with the people of God and to be able to gather in here and worship with one another and to encourage one another. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're probably going to use those tonight. So you might want to grab your Bible. And uh, I'm going to start with, uh, actually going to read quite a few passages tonight. I want to start with the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, that's in your New Testament. Oh, a little more than halfway through Hebrews, the last chapter, chapter 13. And while you're turning there, <clears throat> um, you know, so, sometimes you make announcements uh, in church, but they're not heard. And so uh, you get phone calls or you get texts or, uh, you, you know, you announce what's happening and people don't hear it. For whatever reason, that's normal and natural. Uh, my wife thinks I don't hear half the things she says. Um, Whatever I say next will indict me, so I'll just leave it at that. If I do hear it, I'm in trouble. So, um, But I can assure you, if the governor makes an announcement, every one of you hear it. And not only do you hear it, you text me, for which I'm very thankful. Amen. Uh, the mask order remains in effect from the governor's standpoint until uh, next Wednesday. So nothing changes immediately. I will make uh, an announcement to the church as to our plans going forward. I will tell you this, though. Our primary concern is making sure that, first of all, this is a safe place. Second, making sure that the people that have made the effort to come here with the assurance that it is a safe place, that they feel that assurance. Um, in a quick summary, we have many people not coming because they don't feel safe for whatever reason. But we don't have anyone not coming because they feel too safe. And so we'll make some sort of decision moving forward. I can assure you we won't mask forever, uh, but we will move forward prudently. But we've got a whole Sunday between now and then. So let's see what the Lord will do this Sunday with mass. Amen. Praise the Lord. I want to go to Hebrews chapter 13, and I want to read a verse from there. Just the first verse. The first verse. And it's really simple. Actually, this, yeah. I won't do that to the people projecting. Just we'll stay there. 13 and 1. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. 
Now, the verse right before that, your, your, the Bible originally was not broken down in chapters and verses, like Hebrews, for example, was some sort of written communication, a letter of some sort, style or another. That's a whole other conversation about the style of the book of Hebrews. But nonetheless, there was no break between what we know as chapter 12, verse 29, and chapter 13, verse 1. And so, chapter 12, verse 29 simply says this, For God is a consuming fire. Next verse, let brotherly love continue. <laughs> now, I'm not going to teach on the, the consuming fire part, but just so you know, just so you know, those two verses are right next to each other in the Bible, and uh, they are somehow uh, really close to each other. I want to talk tonight from that verse, chapter 13, verse 1, simply that, let brotherly love continue. Now, the assumption is that brotherly love already exists. Now, if you have children, you doubt that sometimes. Uh, you know, the backseat wars, the invisible lines that you can't cross in the backseat, and the ongoing incessant assaults on one another. Uh, I remember those as a kid growing up. And uh, you just road trips, you know, just became uh, uh, Olympic wrestling matches. And uh, it was quite brutal. Let brotherly love continue. The gospel message is summarized in John 3.16. We know it. I would say probably John 3.16 is the second most known verse of the Bible. The first is probably the 23rd Psalm since we share that with the Jewish uh, people. But for Christians, John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. The gospel itself is rooted in the love of God, the benevolence of God towards us. Now, we do, I'm not going to talk on that tonight, but I do want us to pause there for a moment and contemplate the love of God, the love of God, the boundless, limitless love of God. Um, now, if you think about us as the objects of God's love, God can love whatever he wants, and he could dictate that whatever he chooses loves him back. But that, by definition, is not love. Love is a voluntary, consensual thing. You love someone, it is a willful act, a willful choice you love. And the Bible says that our salvation is rooted in the love of God. Now, we can get into a lot of other topics about the grace of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, uh, even get into more uh, you know, specific doctrines related to our salvation, things like election, all of those sorts of things. But all of that stems from the love of God. And if you, can, if you can comprehend, and I don't know that we can fully comprehend it, but if you can somehow maintain it in your consciousness that you are deeply loved by God. You are loved by your creator. You're loved by the one that is the ultimate being. You're loved by the infinite spirit reality. You're loved by the one that has all power, the one from whom all of this that we see and know derives. You are deeply loved by him. And there's a lot that we know of God from scripture. There's a lot that we learn about him uh, through revelation. But this, this core of his person, in fact, the Bible actually says God is love. And that love is projected at you. And so if you ever feel isolated or alone, you need to remind yourself that you are loved by God. Amen. To be loved by God. Uh, you know, you can get through a lot of things in life if you know you're loved. 
In fact, some people have, uh, uh, scientists of various kinds, have actually listed love as one of the essential needs of human beings. Of course, we need air, we need water, you know, we've got these basic needs. Of, and many would put love in that need, in that list, because a human being that knows he or she is loved has a sense of wholeness and wellness that they do not if they don't know they're loved. There have been studies done, even with infants, uh, those that uh, uh, have access to nurturing parents to touch and those that don't. And there's a fundamental difference in the, in the power of human touch because it is love. It is that touch of assurance. It is that, um, that touch of affirmation. It's that security that they feel. It's being loved. And so our salvation begins with this reality that we are loved by God. We're loved by God. And you know, if we see our relationship with God as one of duty, it becomes difficult. But if we understand it as a relationship of love, it becomes a lot simpler. Amen. It becomes a lot easier to navigate our relationship with God when we recognize that it ultimately is a relationship that is founded in love. And so God loves us. Now, not only is our salvation rooted in the love that God has for us, here's where the rub comes. He expects us then to love one another. Now, this is sort of crooked. It's like the, uh, it's like the foot washing scene at the Last Supper. You know, they, they all come in. They're all too uh, high and mighty to wash each other's feet. And, uh, you know, it was a lowly job reserved for servants. In fact, uh, uh, in some cultures, Jewish cultures even, you couldn't compel, you know, someone of your same rank to wash feet, all this. Anyway, all this hierarchy stuff involved. And so they had borrowed this room. Jesus said, go prepare a place for us to have Passover. So they borrowed this room in Jerusalem. They weren't from Jerusalem. They were from Galilee. So anytime you read about Jesus and the disciples being in Jerusalem, being at the temple, they were traveling. They were out of town. They were on holiday. And so they're there in Jerusalem. They borrowed this room to have Passover in, and therefore no one officially owns the room. No one, therefore, is officially the host. And so it's very easy to say, well, it's not my job. It's not my job. And so they're sitting around there. In fact, you can, as you piece together the story from the Synoptic Gospels, it seems in that very room they're having this argument about which one of them would be the greatest. At the same time, they're all breaking social norms and customs and traditions and are about to get ready to eat dinner with dirty feet because none of them is willing to stoop down, lower himself down, and wash the other's feet. That's what the chaos is going on in the upper room or in the, this place where they're having Passover. While that's going on, Jesus simply gets up. Evidently, there's water there. There's a towel there. The room's prepared. Jesus gets up, he goes, wraps a towel around him, gets the basin of water, and he simply goes around and starts washing their feet. Why? Because their feet are dirty. They need to be washed. And when you get to this, there's this interesting exchange with him and Peter and all this. You get to the end, Jesus then gives them this, this lesson in servitude. He said, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, here's where, it, here's where the curveball comes in. You would think he would say, you ought to wash my feet, Right? I serve you, you serve me. That's not what he says. He says, if I, your master, have washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. And that's the same curveball we get with this love. God loves us, and yeah, we would, we're supposed to love him back, but what really happens here is he says, now you have to love one another. I was like, whoa, 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 I didn't bargain for that. 
I'm okay with this love Jesus, love me back thing. But then he says the demands of the gospel are now you have to love one another. Well, that's a little bit more challenging, isn't it? I mean, we all love God at some level, right? We want to love him at least. We try to love him. We try to. But then he throws us this sort of requirement. Oh, by the way, you've got to love all the people I love. Well, that's a game changer. Well, just so you know, I didn't make this up. Why don't you grab your Bibles? I want to read some passages to you. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Now, Jesus says this in verse 32. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? I mean, I go out to eat Sunday after church with all those people I love. And Jesus says, well, what credit is that? He said, for even sinners love those who love them. In other words, if there's this mutual benefit that you get out of the relationship, he said, well, that's good. You still should love them. You don't get a pass to hate them. He said, go ahead and love them. But he said, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back because you hang out with friends. John chapter 13. John's full of this love stuff, by the way. The gospel of John, the epistle of 1 John in particular. John chapter 13, 34, Jesus said, a new, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now get this, we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, We'll start meddling here. You know, there's these household codes. They call them household codes in the New Testament, particularly in Colossians and Ephesians. Husbands do this, wives do that, children do this, slaves do that. And a lot of times people get stuck up on that wives submit yourselves to your husband thing, and they just get all tripped up. But I'll just kind of let you in on a secret. They get the easy way out. Because before that it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, let me ask you this. Would you rather submit yourself to a benevolent, loving person, or would you rather have the demands of loving someone to the extent that Christ has loved the church? Which is easier. The love that Christ has for the church is a self-sacrificing love is a pouring out. You get this language in, in, in Philippians chapter 2. It's this self-emptying love to the point of death. In other words, when he loved us, Romans says, not when we loved him, he loved us when we hated him. He gave himself for us. He sacrificed himself for us. That's the kind of love that God in Christ had for us. And he says, that's the kind of love that husbands ought to have to a wife. It's not romantic love. It's agape love. It's not eros, the erotic love. It's agape love. It's not brotherly love, Philadelphia. It's agape love. It's this self-sacrificing, valuing of the other, lifting up of the other, esteeming the other. That's the kind of love it is. And so don't get stuck up too much on the, on the wives. Submit yourselves. If someone loves you like that, it's pretty easy to submit. And so God says, okay, I'm loving you and what I now expect you husbands to do, I expect you to love your wives like I loved you. But notice what he says to the disciples in John 13. 
He says, you love one another, and as I have loved you, so you love one another. So it doesn't stop with husbands. We all have to love one another the way Christ loved us. Now, can you measure the love of God? <laughs> Has he ever stopped loving you? No. There's no limit to his love. There's no bounds to his love. There's no, there's no end of his love. And he said, this is the way that you are to love one another. You are to love one another to the extent that Jesus Christ has loved you. Now, that's a big order, folks. That's a really big order. And we'll wind up maybe on this a little bit later, but that's why it's really, that's why it's really shallow when Christians tend to judge one another on the outside and maybe think that they're more righteous or more holy than one another. When the benchmark is the love of Christ, that's the benchmark. Spiritual maturity is not how well you dress up. It's how deeply you love. And he said, as I have loved you, so you love one another, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples. Now, wouldn't it be refreshing? Wouldn't it be refreshing? Do, do y'all remember we just came through an election cycle? Do y'all remember that? That was before Snowmageddon. Right in the middle of COVID, okay? Now, you remember there, there, there's a certain group of politicians that want the vote of the conservative evangelical Christians. That's a part of, we, we kind of get lumped in with that. I would argue we're Pentecostal theologically, and that puts us in a different category than even evangelicals. But that's about as close as you get in a voting block, okay? So they want to court us. And they're out here, you know, photo ops at churches. And they're out here citing their faith. Wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be really nice that in the heat of congressional debates that these same Christians would not lash out hatefully at one another and their colleagues and just go ahead and show us what living as an evangelical Christian looks like? See, it's easy to say this, that, and the other and put a label and a rubber stamp on your shoulder and a sticker on your lapel. It's an entirely another thing to actually live the love of Christ on a daily basis. Because when you love someone, you treat them a certain way. When you love someone, you respond in a certain kind of way. It doesn't mean you don't stand for truth. It doesn't mean you don't stand up for what's right and what is just. But it does dictate the way you act. We'll wrap up there. First John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Now, I'm just going to read this. I'm going to read this because if I just say this, you'll think I'm mean. So I'm just going to read this right, right out of Scripture, okay? First John chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you're not going to believe it, so I want you to read it with me. First John chapter 4 and verse 20. Okay? This is strong, but I'm just reading what the Bible says. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother. Okay, what's it say next? He is a liar. Wow. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? In other words, you get a good glimpse at him, you may not love him. That's the argument. But you have a living flesh and blood brother or sister right in front of your eyes. 
And he says, if you can't love that person, how in the world can you say that you love God? You know what this is saying? This is saying that love in this sense of the New Testament word agape, it's not sentimentality. It's not feeling vibes. It's not feeling butterflies. It's about having a respect and a reverence for a human being who is created in the image of God and a respect for them as someone for whom Christ died. Love. Love. Now, we'll talk about those difficult people in a moment. I know what you're thinking. We'll talk about that. If we are to love people and we're to love God... This means that our, our love for God works itself out in our love for other people. Our religion, therefore, is not exclusively about God. It's not exclusively about just having a relationship with God, but it works itself out in our lives, in our relationships with humanity. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, or the, the Matthew says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They were happy. That was their enemy. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, a teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second, Jesus didn't let him off the hook. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. What Jesus is saying, there's a lot here, but he's saying you can't just exclusively love God and then be a Grinch to everybody else. You can't love God and hold grudges against people. You can't love God and hate people. No, that doesn't mean you're a jolly good fellow and you're, you know, the entertainer in the room. It doesn't mean that you're the happy-go-lucky person. Everybody has a personality and a temperament. But what it does mean is that our love for God gets fleshed out in our love for people. You cannot love God and not have that manifest itself in a love towards people. It also tells us that in the order of the sequence of things here, it tells us that our love for God dictates the ways in which we can love people. You know, you take a stand for righteousness today. People say, oh, you hate certain groups of people. No, I don't hate certain groups of people. I love people. But my love of God dictates how I interact with people. My love of God dictates what love looks like. My love of God dictates what love really is. And so we love God, and from that love of God, then we love people. And so this is the teaching of Scripture. But when you look at this, this is not something that just gets dropped on the scene with Jesus. In fact, in this very passage I just read, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Sometimes we think of the Old Testament as this just rules and regulations. Well, you know what the rules and the regulations were for? They were to teach us how to love God. In fact, Deuteronomy, just just. Get a concordance app out and search the word love in the book of Deuteronomy. You know what all those rules for? It was God telling them, this is how I want to be loved. This is how you are to love me. You're to keep Sabbath and you're to offer sacrifices, not out of just cold, sterile ritual, but this is a way for you to love me. And from beginning to end, we see that this story, this narrative of redemption is about God's love for us, but also us acting out that same love towards other people. We don't have time to survey all of these in the Old Testament. 
But one of the main issues, for example, in the minor prophets is the ill treatment of your fellow human being. If you just read those 12 minor prophets, you will find these strong rebukes about how, they tr how, how they're treating the underprivileged, how they're treating the foreigner, how they're treating the fatherless, how they're treating the widow, how they're treating people in, in, with, with false business transactions. All the, what is it? It's about teaching them how to love one another. Micah, the book of Micah, you get to the end of that book, and Micah 6 and 8 says this, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Two of those three are the way you treat other people. That's what God wants. Love of humanity. It is especially, of course, borne out in the New Testament. Now, I want to read you a bunch of passages here. So you can follow if you can turn quickly. Otherwise, you can write them, type them, text them, something. You'll have them. This idea that our love for God is to be borne out through us in loving other people is filled. These passages, are, are, they fill the New Testament. Let me read a few of them to you. James chapter 1, half-brother of the Lord. James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To dance on Sundays in the church and to jump and to scream and to rejoice and to shout with a loud voice unto God. That's well, not bad. In fact, it's pretty good. You should try it. But pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Things you should do and things you should not do. The ways you interact with human beings. Now listen to this. Here's, here's just a short list. Most of these remaining ones are from Paul. We are to prefer and honor others over ourselves. Now this is not easy stuff. We're to prefer and honor others over ourselves. Romans chapter 12. Be kindly affectionate to one another. With what? This is at Philadelphia. With brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. So, in other words, we have to give preference and deference to one another. Now, where would all the conflicts go if we did that? I won't, I won't meddle with your home conflicts. Let's just talk, talk about church conflicts. Are we going to do this, that, or the other? What if we just forgot the rest of the lesson tonight and just said, we're going to zone in, we're just going to zoom right here, Romans chapter 12, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Oh, you would like to start at that time? Well, of course we'll start at that time. That's the mindset that we are to interact with other people with. Now, this verse and the ones that follow sort of run counter to the individualism that we experience in a Western society, particularly in the United States, and doubly so in the great state of Texas. The bottom line is we don't want anyone telling us what to do. That's the bottom line. That's a pretty good bottom line when you're talking about the government, but I digress. 
But the scriptural principles of the way we interact with other people is to prefer other people. It's to defer to other people. It's not to insist on rights. I'll read some more passages and then I'll say a few more things. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're to seek the welfare of others above our own. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 24. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Let no one seek his own, but the other's well-being. That's pretty simple, isn't it? I'll read you another one. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we are not to be motivated by selfish ambition or seek our own interests. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, there's more of these, but that's enough. Imagine what a wonderful world it would be if people lived by these principles. Imagine what a harmonious place it would be if people lived by these principles. In our personal relationships, in our strivings to, to work together as a family or as a church or colleagues, wherever you are, if these principles were really at play and where our interests really were with the welfare of other people. And if you really wanted to steal love, that's what it is. You're concerned about the welfare of another person. In other words, your own welfare gets subjugated. Your own welfare becomes secondary. And it's the welfare of the other that you're seeking. Now, this is basic Christianity. It's not Sunday church. Now, Sunday church is important. Don't get me wrong. That's extraordinarily important. But when you leave Sunday church, if Sunday church doesn't make you live like this, something's wrong with Sunday church. And this is what the Christian life looks like. Let brotherly love continue. Praise God. Let it continue. We should err on the side of mercy. We should err on the side of patience. We should err on the side of generosity. We should err on the side of kindness. We should err on the side of deference. You know, if, it ever, if, you're, if you're ever faced with one of these choices about what to do, err on the side of being kind. Err on the side of being generous. You know, you're calculating, there's just simple things. You're calculating a tip at the table. The waiter was a little distracted. It wasn't quite what you wanted. And you're trying to figure out if you should double your tax or not. Err on the side of generosity. Would two more dollars really hurt you? Really. It might do you good to get rid of that filthy lucre. When we have choices to make, err on the side of mercy. Err on the side of, of acceptance. Err on the side of withholding judgment. 
err on the side of love. Now, love is not ignoring crime. Love is not ignoring sin. Love is not, in fact, love will try to prevent someone from going in those directions. But love also realizes that there are human beings that don't need my condemnation. They need my generosity. They need my touch. They need my reach. They, they need to know that I still love them. And Jesus told his disciples, as I have loved you, so you love one another. And what is it that we need from God? Yes, we will face judgment if we don't repent. But what we experience over and over and over again is the love of God. And it is that love of God that keeps drawing us back. It keeps renewing us. It keeps strengthening us. It's what makes us know that we are accepted by him. And that's what we need. And Jesus said, as I have loved you, so love one another. Let brotherly love continue. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking about, well, what about those difficult people? Well, they're the ones that need it the most. And quite honestly, you know, once you sort of give up that, um, once you give up that right to conflict, your life becomes a lot easier. You know, it was when you decide, you know, I'm just not defending that anymore. I'm just, it's not an issue anymore. It takes a huge burden off of you when you just sort of say, you know, this is going to be between, you know, this person and God. It's not really my problem. I don't agree with it. But when we make that choice and that decision to love instead of win, guess who sleeps better at night? It's us. Now, Let's talk about those difficult folks. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to read this. If you're online, we'll wait for you. Go grab your Bible. I know you have your iced tea, but go get your Bible. First Corinthians chapter 12. Now, let me tell you what they're talking about here. What's going on here... Well, actually, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As you're turning there, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, what's going on here? They live in a pagan world, very unlike the world we live in. And so there's all these temples that offer sacrifices. And here's what would happen. People would offer sacrifices in the temple... Those are good chunks of meat. I mean, they killed the thing and spilled the blood to some fictitious god, but it's still a pretty good chunk of meat. The meat would wind up at a bazaar where it would be sold. Half the Christians are like, fresh meat on sale, I'll take it. The other half of the Christians are thinking, my goodness, the thing's consecrated to Satan. What are you talking about? And so there became a rift. And this is what Paul is talking about. And I want to read this. If you have your Bibles, it's a short chapter. We're going to read this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now, what he's talking about knowledge, he's talking about doctrine. He's talking about right and wrong. 
He's talking about theology. He's talking about belief systems. And what he's saying is that stuff will puff you up and make you proud, but love edifies. So he's setting the tone and saying, look, if we're going to solve this contentious effort in the church, it's not going to be a head thing where we out-debate one another. It's going to be a love thing where we have compassion and we care for one another. So he said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So he said, okay, all you theologians. He says, knowledge puffs up. And those of you that are presenting yourself like you know so much, you really don't know the thing you need to know the most. And the thing you need to know the most is how to love people. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So he frames the conversation this way. We're going to talk about how you deal with this theological divide in the church. But he said the thing that governs the conversation is our love for one another and our love for God. And if you don't get that, Paul says, you're just puffed up. In other words, your knowledge, your theology, without consideration for whether your doctrine is right. If you have doctrine without love, he's basically saying you don't have an argument in this discussion. Now, that's sort of backwards to the way a lot of people think. It's backwards to the way a lot of Pentecostals think. I've seen people that can cite chapter and verse. They can explain the oneness of God. They can explain the new birth. They can explain holiness, the Bible's version and their version. They can explain all sorts of things. And they can condemn everyone in the world and in the church that disagrees with them. And they have chapter and verse and books and things they can quote and cite. And they're smart. But what they lack is love. And Paul tackles this issue right up front. Before he gets into the meat of the argument, he says, folks, the thing that's going to govern this is love. It's not knowledge, it's love. Love can govern knowledge, but knowledge cannot govern love. Knowledge stifles love. So you've got to get that hierarchy figured out. If your knowledge supersedes your love, your knowledge will squash your love. But if your love supersedes your theology and your, and, your, and, your, and your belief structure, then your love will give guidance and it will give wisdom and it will give understanding to what you believe. And he said, you got to get that hierarchy right or you're going to be in trouble. Verse 4, therefore, now he gets back to what he started to talk about. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is no other God but one. He said, look, verse, verse 5. For even if there, there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of, of whom are all things, and we, are, uh, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So he said, look, we know there aren't any other gods. We know that. These are man-made constructs. They're not real. They're shadows. They don't exist. They're little sticks and stones. They're little carvings. That's all they are. Yet for us, verse 6, verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some with consciousness of the idol un until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol 
and their conscience being weak is defiled. So he's saying some people's conscience can't bear that. They don't have a full understanding. So here's, and you're going to see him delineate the rest of the argument like this. Those of you that have true and accurate understanding and those who don't have accurate understanding, and guess what? He labels those that don't have accurate understanding as weak. So here's the question. How do those of us who are strong, and it's always us who are strong, right? We're never in the weak category, right? Okay, just getting that straight. How do those of us who are strong then deal with those who are weak? And the answer is not, they just need to get over it. And the answer is not, they just need to straighten up. And the answer is not, well, I know the truth, and so therefore they're the ones that need to change. Well, let's let Paul speak. However, there is not, verse 7, in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak, there's that word weak, their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we worse. So he's saying it's not really a deal. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours, your liberty to eat and not worry about it, beware lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, I mean, you just went right to the bar and, you know, right behind where they're slaughtering the things and bellied up and got you a, you know, a hindquarter and you're in the temple eating, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? So here's the argument. His conscience, a person's conscience is saying they can't do it. And yet they see you do it, then they violate their conscience because they see you do it, and they do it violating their conscience all the while, feeling it's wrong, knowing it's wrong, for them it's wrong, and, and they eat. In other words, they have violated their conscience because of your example. Now, again, we would say, hey, we want a convert. Pull on up and have a hindquarter with me, bro. Paul is protecting the conscience of the weaker person because a conscience, once violated, has no boundaries. If anyone sees you, he said, it's an issue. Verse 11, and because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. In other words, you're mature and you can do this. But do you want to insist on doing this at the destruction of a brother who will do it and then go out and feel condemnation and may walk away from God out of shame and guilt? And because your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. And I love that, for whom Christ died. That's the way we should think of every human being we encounter, someone for whom Christ died. Verse 12, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. That's powerful. Paul is saying if someone is struggling with something, our job is not to erase their conviction. Now, this is a, a strange issue for us, right? Meat offered to idols. We don't even know where our meat comes from. We just pull up the menu, order it, boom, we're good. 
But if this is true on that level, what about all the other things that we may disagree with one another about? What about all the other things that might be along the path of our relationships with other people in church? Paul's saying, yeah, there's some of you who are strong. You understand the scriptures. You understand the word of God. You understand what it says. But he says, if you insist on, on, on flaunting your knowledge and flaunting what you know to be true, and it causes someone to violate their conscience, he says, you sin against that person. He says, your knowledge shall the weak person perish, but you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience. And he said, in doing that, you sin against Christ. Now, notice the bigger issue here, the global issue. If you cause a fellow brother to stumble, you have sinned against God. Well, they should know better. They should know the teaching. They get the same books I have. They have the same Bible. They have the same pastor. They've heard all the same stuff I have. I can assure you there's a diversity of beliefs in our church on a whole lot of things. Oh, like mass. <laughs> I was really talking about theological things, but... That was convenient. There's a lot of opinions about a lot of things. And Paul's saying, you might be right. But if you insist on your rightness to someone who is weak and you cause them to violate their conscience, you sin against them and you sin against God because their conscience is not yours to violate. Conscience. Now look at the last verse in this chapter. Now Paul says other things about this same topic elsewhere, like go ahead and chow down. He says that elsewhere. That's just meat. Eat it. But here he's talking about particularly when eating it would cause someone to stumble. And this is what he says in verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Well, that's a big commitment. What would we say? That's his problem. He can go somewhere else and eat. Right? You're laughing because you know it's true. It's his problem. Let him deal with it. What is the underlying principle of chapter 8 that I just read to you? What is the governing principle of chapter 8? It's love. It's actually esteeming someone else, their relationship with God, their spiritual journey, their emotional and spiritual welfare. It's esteeming them more than yourself. And when you can do that, Paul says, you're the strong one. Have respect for the weak one. So what do we do with the annoying weak ones? We accommodate them. We love them. We nurture them. We remove stumbling blocks from them. If their understanding evolves, praise God. If it doesn't, we respect it. The underlying principle is love. The underlying principle is the self-sacrificial love of one believer for another believer. Jude. Jude is the last book before the book of Revelation. Coincidentally, also a half-brother of the Lord. We read from James, who was also a half-brother of the Lord. I love the book of Jude. It's one chapter, but it begins like this. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, 
So he starts off, he's talking about his half-brother. He says, I too am a bondservant. Mercy and peace. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book, and it's a short book. There's a lot that uh, we could talk about in it, but I will uh, leave that for another time. Jude 20. And 23, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves, what? In the love of God, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, all of that's about our, our relationship with God. Now, here's how it gets fleshed out with our relationship with others. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. And that uh, there's a question about how to translate that distinction. And some of your Bibles uh, may talk about people committing sins or, or actually doubting. Um, and the implication there is they're doubting. They're making distinctions between things. They're doubtful. They're skeptical. They're analyzing things. Uh, so some of your translations may say doubt. So if that's the way it's to be translated, have compassion on those that doubt. Have compassion on those that doubt. Sometimes we struggle to believe. Sometimes we struggle to have faith. It says, have compassion on those that doubt, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. He's talking about reaching for people. He's talking about grabbing for them. People that have gone too far, people that are sliding, people that are on the edge, people that are on the perimeter, reach for them. That's the love of the church. That's the love of the church. All of these things that I read from Paul, preferring others, seeking the interest of others, putting their interest above yours. It ultimately works itself out in a life that is reaching for other people. You know, occasionally in... You know, I grew up in church, uh, thankful for that. It doesn't mean I was always right or perfect or didn't have some little journeys off on side streets, but it was raised in church and uh, raised in a pastor's home. So I've, you know, for 51 years now, I've been able to observe church, participate in church, see churches planted, see churches grow, uh, see dumb stuff in churches, um, just full range of experiences. You know, and over that time period, you know, occasionally you'll, you'll hear the, the thing about, you know, well, I'm just not being fed there. It's like you got a fork. You know what that mentality is? That mentality is I'm showing up to get. I want to get. And if I don't get what I think I ought to get, then I'm not happy. That is the antithesis of the attitude of love. Love walks in the room and prefers others over itself. Love walks in the room and seeks the betterment of others over itself. Love walks in the room and is preferring others. Love walks in the room and is trying to fulfill others. 
And if you think about this attitude of love, it permeates everything in our Christian life, whether we become self-absorbed, feed me, do this for me, make me happy, give me what I want, or whether or not we flip that and we invert that and we become the servant of all. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. You know, there are times, there are times where there are times where there are weak among us. There are times where there's weak people in your sphere of influence, people that are struggling. Sometimes we have to slow down and wait on them. You've probably heard me mention this passage many times. I particularly mention it uh, talking about vision and leadership and things. But you know, when Esau and Jacob had their reunion, Esau and Jacob and Je Esau's wanting Jacob to go back with him, and, and Jacob says, "I can't go because I've got little babies and I've got little ewe lambs, and if we travel too fast, it's going to hurt them. I can only go as fast as they can travel." Do you remember when Miriam and, 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 and Aaron resisted Moses and God smote them with leprosy? Moses intervened; they were they were healed, but they had to live outside the camp for a long time. What did the camp do? What did the nation do? The nation stopped. And they waited. That's the attitude of love. There are not these blind goals and these, these arbitrary you know, things that we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to move forward as a community. And sometimes someone among us is injured. We might have to slow down a little bit. Sometimes things might not be working on all cylinders and there's a problem. What do we do? We don't just run off and leave it and drag it down the road. We stop and we tend to it and we heal it and we nurture it. I don't know what's going to happen when we get out of this COVID thing. But I know we have a lot of people that aren't here. And I know there's a lot of hurting people. And I know there's a lot of people with needs. We're going to do the best we can. But we're going to make every effort to take everybody with us. Sometimes that might mean a slow journey. Sometimes that might mean a cautious decision. What are we doing? We're waiting on folks that aren't ready to move yet. Nurturing people. What is it? It's that attitude of love. I don't know about you, but, you know, sibling rivalry. Miriam and Aaron were Moses' brother and sister. In fact, Miriam's the one that saved his hide out in the bulrushes. Yeah, and I'm not saying Moses was always perfect either. But Miriam and Aaron got a little haughty there. Who is, who is Moses? Can God only speak through Moses? We changed his diapers. And they started raising up their attitudes against Moses. Yeah, Moses wasn't perfect, but God struck them down. And it would have been all within their rights to just, to just discard them by the road and say, adios, good riddance. But they didn't. And you know what? When that Red Sea parted, you remember the story? This was in the rearview mirror. But Moses may be remembering that moment. It was Miriam that grabbed the tambourine and started dancing and singing and leading Israel in a worship song before the Lord. Moses saw there's something in her it's worth keeping. There's something in her it's worth preserving. And yeah, she may have gotten off track and she may have gotten a little frustrated, but we've got time to wait on her. What is it? 
It's that attitude of love. Let brotherly love continue. We're out of time. I'm looking forward to Sunday. Praise the Lord. I'm looking forward to seeing a great outpouring of the Spirit of God. I'm looking forward to the Lord speaking to hearts, lives, individuals, to all of us. Amen. I'm looking forward to some maybe who are struggling, having a breakthrough moment. Maybe some who are sick being healed, some being filled with the Spirit, some being baptized. That's what we're here for. We're here to nurture them to health and strength. Praise God. I want us to stand and go to the Lord with thanksgiving as we come to a close today. Could we offer thanks to the Lord? Could we thank Him for His unfailing love to us? Lord, I thank You. Lord, I thank You for Your amazing love, Your unfailing love in our lives. I pray that that love would be passed on through us. I pray that we would be channels. We would be conduits through whom that love would just flow out. We have freely received. Let us freely give. I pray that brotherly love would be renewed within us, a compassion, a longing, a desire. Lord, a desire to, Lord, see our fellow Christians and believers come to full understanding and full strength and to overcome their struggles and to be victorious in their lives. Let us bear with one another. Let us bear one another's burdens. Let us forgive. Let us, Lord, encourage. Let us strengthen. and Give us that grace and strength in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I challenge you, let brotherly love continue. Let's go out and do that this week. The Lord bless you. We'll see you on Sunday.